Hey everyone, Corey DeVos here, and thank you so much for joining us for this very special kickoff episode of our brand new series, which I think we're going to be calling Doing Justice. That's kind of up in the air still, but that's, that's sort of what feels right at this moment. Uh, and I'm going to be doing this show with my really good friend, Mark Fischler, uh, who's here with us today. Mark, how you doing, man? I'm good, Corey. Good to, good to be with you. Good to be with the audience. Good to be with Integralists. So I'm, I'm jazzed to talk about the law and, and justice and, and just have a good time with you. Yeah, man. I think it's going to be a lot of fun. I think we've got some, some really, really cool conversations sort of lined up for us. Uh, and just to you know, sort of orient people, uh, what we're going to be doing with this series is we're basically going to be taking a look at some of the more complex stories uh, of our time. And we're going to be looking at it through the lens of integral law. And before we, you know, basically talk about what that means, um, I wanted to, you know, basically introduce you uh, to our audience. Um, so, Mark, I'm, I'm, I'm hoping you can just tell us a little bit about yourself, yeah. about your background. And really, what I'm curious about is what led you to this really, really interesting intersection between integral theory and legal theory. Yeah, yeah, um, I'd love to. So, <clears throat> I... I went to, it's, it's interesting, when I was in college, I was really into political science. And I really thought I was going to get into like politics and things like that. But, you know, strange things happen. And I found that or I wasn't even able to fully own it. But I, I my, my natural inclination and interests were towards things like philosophy, law and justice. Hmm. And so some really smart professors started to gear me towards going to law school when I thought I was going to be working for a senator or something like that. And, uh, and once I got to law school, um, you know, it was, it was just this kind of beautiful journey of kind of looking at the law. And I really started to look at it from a, a philosophical perspective. And so I, I saw and, and during law school that they were like, you know, which side was right? Because, you, you know, you would read a, uh, uh, you know, a case and you'd see the dissent and you'd see the majority decision. And like, I'd go home and I'd be like, what the hell? Like, I can't, I can't decide who's right. And I see like the partial ways that both of these people are right. And I can't even believe that because I thought I was really, you know, a leftist in some ways. And I see that I'm really resonating with some of our more conservative justices, just as I'm resonating with the other justices. So this kind of conundrum, this problem started to erupt. And, and then when I hit my third year of law school, um, I, 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 I just had this moment in time where I realized uh, I just had, you know, God, spirit, life just whacked me over the head and made me self-reflect about, you know, who I am and where I'm going. And I started... Uh, a meditation practice and uh, and kind of deepening. I use at that point I used Zen Buddhism at the time to kind of kickstart my spiritual understanding of things. And so I continued. I, I went on and I became a New Hampshire public defender and I represented people in court. And uh, but I but I still was like deeper into this philosophy. Like in law school, it was like natural law versus positive law. Mm. And, and like, I could never like decide what was right. And, and so, you know, as I deepened my spiritual practice, 
uh, you know, I, I hear about this person uh, who's connected Eastern philosophy and Western philosophy and, and has kind of has, has, has helped heal that, that divide, the natural law versus positive law divide. And so I start reading Ken Wilber and who just kind of totally blows my brain away in terms of kind of healing this fragmentation that had been such a part of my existence that I was trying to heal on my own and through his own philosophical East-West connection, de development, quadrants, all the rest of it as it developed over time just really kind of hit me really hard. So mm -hmm. I ended up um, when I was about three and a half years into being a lawyer and my career was going great. I loved it. Uh, it gave me a lot of really great meaning. It opened, I, I, you know, I had a systemic appreciation for the work of challenging the government. And I also had, it really opened my heart uh, to the plight of human beings that were suffering uh, as, as, as a public defender, you know, folks that are at the margins of, of life. And, and so uh, I, I didn't expect that in the job, but I certainly think my spiritual practices were, uh, you know, uh, contributing to that. Mm. And then about three years in, I had another moment where I just uh, spontaneously just said out loud to the universe, like, am I supposed to leave everything? And, and, and mind you, I had uh, an offer from the former president of the criminal defense bar in New York City for the United States to, to come work for him in New York City, Bob Fogelnest. I had, you know, I was, I was doing great in my work as a public defender. I was loving my work. I was loving my life living up in the North country of New Hampshire. And, and whack, I got this whack from hmm. spirit and life that I was supposed to leave it all. So I did. And, uh, I connected in a spiritual community out in New Mexico, and then I eventually came back east after about a year, year and a half out there. And when I did, I thought about teaching, but I didn't really know any avenue at, uh, at the university level, and I hadn't published enough articles at the, uh, in, or I hadn't really done enough, I think, in my opinion, to be a law professor. So ends up a uh, judge that I had performed in front of asked me to help him start the criminal justice department at Plymouth State University in New Hampshire. And I came in as a lowly instructor and became an assistant professor, associate professor. And now I just, I'm being promoted to full. And in the interim, I've done some other fun jobs at the university, like be the interim vice president for student affairs and Dean the first year experience. And now I'm back in the classroom and, uh, you know, and enjoying the hell out of that work. So that's that's just a quick bio. And I'm I'm here because I I, I love Ken's work. Uh, I've written some stuff on integral law, and uh, we've shared some great thoughts and conversations. And he's been a fantastic support. And I just love all the stuff that's going on with you guys, and love you, bro. No. Oh. Love you too, man. Well, that's that's awesome. I mean, what a what a fascinating journey, and it's one of those things I always, I always find so um, sort of endearing about uh, people's integral journey is just all the unique ways that they find to sort of integrate these interior pressures that we feel with these exterior sort of realities uh, and opportunities, and you know, and all of that, and um, you know, bringing all of these together in a very unique way. 
uh, in order to, to forge your path forward. And um, I think your story is, is, is a wonderful example of that. And it's, it's uh, just sort of endlessly fascinating how you've, you've oscillated between, you know, these two sort of dimensions of our, of our reality that don't really get a whole lot of overlap. Um, but probably should more than it does. I mean, I think our, our spiritual communities could certainly use a bit more, I don't know, let's say a more structured approach to things sure. like truth. And our legal communities could use a hell of a lot more heart and soul, um, yeah. you know, and, and not to mention maybe ratcheting up the consciousness a little bit. Um, so it's, it's, it's a really cool journey. And, uh, you, and you mentioned integral law. And so I figured what we do is at the, at the, at the start of this episode, yeah. Because integral law is really going to be the centerpiece of these conversations, which I think is really cool for reasons we'll talk about later. But yeah. you know, I want to I ask the question, so what exactly is integral law? I mean, yeah. if we define integral law the same way we define, let's say, integral art, then that would mean, okay, well, it's laws that are enacted and encoded uh, coming from a integral consciousness. And if that's the definition of integral law, my sense is we probably don't have a whole lot of integral laws on the books, and it's probably going to be a little while, you know, before we do. Um, yeah. Or is there another meaning of integral law? I mean, one of the ways that I enact the phrase is, you know, simply enacting laws through an integral lens. And what that means is, you know, sort of making sure that the letter of the law is at least somewhat aligned with the spirit of the law, um, at least as, you know, as much as possible, making sure that the laws may be coming from a minimally orange uh, altitude of moral development. Sure. Um, and it also seems like, you know, a couple other elements, it seems like there's a, a strong sort of progressive element to integral law and progressive in the integral sense. In other words, uh, you know, simply wanting to see systems emerge that don't currently exist, which is sort of the integral definition of progressive. Um, but there's also a conservative aspect too, which is, you know, really preserving and protecting and enforcing uh, the integrity of the law as it already exists today and making sure that those laws aren't corrupted or used for uh, nefarious ends. So there's, there's a lot to unpack here. And I'm wondering, what is, what is your definition of integral law? What, what is it that we're actually going to be talking about in these discussions? Yeah, yeah. So I love, I love your take. And um, it, it just, this will be a lot of fun. So, um, so when, when you think about integral law, you know, when we think about law, right, when we, we think about law, it's a lower right quadrant phenomena. Mm -hmm. And that obviously is impacted by all four quadrants at the same time. But laws are, uh, is, is kind of our system, our systemic approach to the ways that we as a society have agreed to enforce rules in terms of the way that we engage and work with each other and hold each other accountable. Mm. Uh, in our society from a criminal and civil perspective. So uh, it's, it's kind of, it's that the laws kind of represent that systemic expression of our existence. Mm -hmm. now, and of, of our self-organization. Of our self-organization, yeah. right. So, you know, you could take something like the issue of prostitution, right? You know, it's been in the news from human trafficking related issues to owners of of uh, big football teams and things like that. So when you look at the issue of say like prostitution, you could look at it that we have laws that say it's illegal. And then um, uh, as an individual, I can uh, make a behavioral decision about whether I wanna break that law or, or not. 
And at the same time, I have my own interior thoughts about the law. And then at the same time, I can engage others in terms of the cultural expression, in terms of whether or not that's a good law that we ought to continue or not. So, mm. you know, the law, uh, at least right there, has this, that kind of that the, those four quadrants are all those different pieces are playing with the law. At the same time, we can look at the law from a developmental perspective. Mm -hmm. And so we can think about laws from pre-modern times to modern times to post-modern times. And we can engage and think about, you know, what, what, is, what is the proper way to, to or what, are, what are good laws today? And mm -hmm. so, you know, just an example, we might think about something like the cruel and unusual punishment clause of the Constitution. And, and you know, back in the day when the Constitution was made, you know, uh, cer certainly things that we would consider illegal, things like torture, uh, stuff like that, um, we, we, we would today say, you know, from a developmental perspective, you know what, that's really not the wisest thing. Or we might say, you know, that we looked at juveniles, you know, not really as juveniles until the early 20th century. And so we have a much more, you know, we, we, we understand development in terms of the, the kid's brain and, and how long it takes to develop until you're about 26 years of age. And so, you know, the law has, you know, we can see from a developmental perspective that it can express itself in different ways. And you really see that, um, you know, you're starting to see, I think, at least in, in the criminal justice system, uh, you're starting to see, I would say, some of the more pluralistic green expressions uh, of law where you see things like restorative justice mm -hmm. happening more around uh, our country and the world. Uh, you're seeing things like drug courts where we're taking individuals that weren't necessarily, you know, we, we don't put them through the regular system. Uh, we put them through a different system. We do, we, we do it sometimes for veterans. Uh, you know, we take them through a little bit of a different ride uh, through the process, which has a lot more kind of rehabilitation related things that go along with it. So we can look at the law from the perspective we talked about in terms of what the law is, we can look at it from a developmental perspective. And we can also look at the law from the per perspective of the individuals that are actually enacting, enforcing, uh, interpreting. Actually, let me go back. Let me go to interpreting. That's, and then I'll do the other one last. So mm -hmm. another way of looking at the law is from uh, the perspective of interpretation. So, you know, one of my favorite um, chapters in um, um, one of Ken's books was about when he talked about, like, what is integral art in, uh, in literary theory? Mm -hmm. And uh, and so that really, um, I read some of those those two chapters probably fifty times in my life, and 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 trying to interpret how we might look at the law from a similar perspective, because there's a lot of real similarities. So, you, you know, mean in terms of how that article is able to create a scaffolding that allows us within a particular field of inquiry, in this case, art and aesthetics, you're able to sort of in a cross-disciplinary way, unite all of these different schools of, of interpretation. Right. Of and you're actually able to show how they're all 
sort of equally right, but also all kind of missing at least three fourths of, of the picture. Exactly, exactly. And, and what's interesting is that there's crossover with the literary theory or art uh, in, in some of the same language that legal interpreters <laughs> uh, utilize themselves. So, you know, so for example, um, you know, in the law, there's a subgroup, uh, very strong subgroup of, of lawyers and generally conservative right now at this point in history that uh, see the law from, and only want to interpret the law from uh, the original intent perspective. So what did the uh, original uh, thinkers that thought the constitution, what did they think when they, you know, created that law? Mm -hmm. And so really like one of our most famous justices, uh, at least recently, who recently passed away, Justice Scalia, really uh, takes on that perspective of what the law is. Uh, and at the same time, there are, and, and it's an, another group of conservative justices, they sometimes cross over on both of these sides, mm -hmm. but they're, they're strict constructionists. And so they want to know, well, what did the law say? And I don't really care about what they think. I want to know exactly what the law says. And right. so, um, and, and they try to, you know, uh, interpret from that perspective. At the same time, if you want to go down to the lower right, um, kind of a more systemic, a kind of utilitarian kind of perspective on, you know, looking at systems and, and the impact of the law on systems. Uh, of, he's not on the Supreme Court, but he's a circuit court judge of appeals, a prolific writer named Richard Posner, who's Judge Posner, uh, is really uh, done a lot with that perspective of the law. And then, and then if you go to the lower left and the kind of the more cultural perspective, which, which really, really says that, you know, we're going to see the law as it evolves over time that, you know, and, and, and we're going to see that it's, it's kind of like what I was saying that, you know, we don't interpret, you know, cruel and unusual punishment the same way that we did in 1791 when we enacted the bill of rights. And so, um, some would argue to, that we should just follow that perspective, but the folks that uh, that see the evolving uh, evolving standards of decency, Justice Kennedy, uh, who just left the Supreme Court, used that language a lot. And I would say some of our more progressive judges uh, that sit on the Supreme Court uh, argue from that perspective. And it's and it's really, I mean, that perspective has even goes back to like our, you know, probably our, one of our greatest chief justices, Justice Marshall, who, uh, you know, really kind of set the Supreme Court as this branch of government that was really truly a co-equal branch of government, mm -hmm. which I would say, I'm not necessarily sure that our founding um, fathers and mothers were, when they created the Constitution, were really looking at that branch to be as strong as the other two branches. So, so we've got that perspective, an interpretive look at the law. And then finally, we can look at the law from the perspective of the person that is in the system. That, uh, so, uh, you know, a person can develop uh, an integral life practice as, as, as a person that is a practitioner in the system. And, and, and boy, would that be helpful for, I think, a lot of the folks that 
have to enforce the law, meaning police officers, mm -hmm. and many of the folks that have to practice the law as lawyers and to kind of build that more comprehensive developmental perspective and also, you know, the recognition of spirit and, you know, emotional well-being uh, and, and into the conversation, I certainly think would do those that practice and enforce the law a great deal of good. And we're certainly seeing some some police departments across the nation that are doing things like meditation and uh, it's starting to creep into uh, the legal realm as well. So, you know, we've got a long way to go in so many different ways, but I think that would be a quick tour of, of, of integral law. Yeah. Hopefully can get us going. Yeah. Totally. No, I, that, that was, that was a, a, an awesome overview. Thank you. Um, and you know, I, two of the two of the things that you that you raised that I was sort of leaning forward on is is when you're talking about the spectrum of law that exists, because yeah, there's there's obviously a, a pretty significant developmental delta between the Code of Hammurabi and the question of do rivers have rights, for example, as an example of sort of postmodern law, um, yeah. you know, and arguably healthy postmodern law. Um, so I think that was really cool, and I also love how you. Um, you know, you really got into the, the many ways that law can be interpreted and also how law actually helps kind of regulate our interpretations. And I think that is important for this series that we're going to be doing together because I, I, one of the things I love about this frame is, you know, as you just said, when we take sort of, uh, let me just kind of, you know, geek out for a minute. When you, when, you, when you take a quadrivia view of the law, you can see that this is a four quadrant uh, occasion just like you know really just like everything else is it it, it 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 exists in all four quadrants simultaneously and these four quadrants all come with their own pressures and they also in turn pressure the other quadrants in, in various ways um, however when we're looking at a human being and the, the four quadrants of a human being we could you know sort of use some shorthand and say well the law you know belongs in the lower right quadrant it's what regulates our behaviors in the upper right, it's what regulates our various interpretations in the lower left, and and ultimately helps inform our sense of right and wrong in the upper left. And the fact that we're able to do that, the fact that we're able to sort of lead this conversation uh, by looking at these matters through a lower right quadrant, I think that helps bring a certain kind of hygiene to these conversations. Do you know what I mean? It's like it kind of forces us to leave our preconceived narratives and our political beliefs and our biases at the door. Um, you know, and of course these beliefs and narratives and biases are all going to influence how we then interpret and enact the laws that are sort of on the books. But for the sake of having the conversation, when you really make, make the law itself, it's, it's, it's sort of black and white in a certain kind of sense. You can put it between two people, you can debate the merits of that law, but you can't, you can't say this, you know, that this law says something that it clearly does not say. So there's, there's an invitation to leave behind your bias and really try to drill down and get a better sense of where is truth, where is justice. And, you know, you mentioned sort of the struggle that you had with, you know, there's this integral impulse that everyone is right. And everyone who's, who really gets turned on by, by uh, you know, the integral theory or the integral lifestyle or what have you, I think that, that that idea, that concept that everyone is right really, really resonates. However, the one place where everyone can't be right is in the courtroom. 
<laughs> right? Someone's always going to be more right than the other, or else we wouldn't be having this conflict escalated, right. you know, into the legal system to begin with. Um, so it's 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 an interesting challenge, I think, for 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 all of us who uh, you know want to see you know integral emerge in a more you know full throated way in the world in our lifetimes, and particularly in the lower right quadrant once we sort of hit that mythical tipping point that that Ken Wilber is often talking about. All of that said, um, what we're going to be doing today is we're going to be talking about the big story of the week, which is. Da, 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 the Mueller report. Yeah. Basically, Mark, what I'm going to be asking you to do is to give me the Fischler report of yeah. the Barr report of the Mueller report. <laughs> we're, you know, sure. sort of pl uh, playing with a few proxies here. Um, so basically, just to get us started, um, yeah. you know, I've got a lot of questions about the report um, as well as about the Barr report. And I've got a lot of opinions too. And some of those are really strong opinions. Um, but knowing yeah. that I am a human being with my own biases and blind spots and all that, what I do is when I'm feeling a charge like this is I tend to seek out people who are far more intelligent than myself. <laughs> and so I found you. <laughs> well, so I'm gonna be talking to you about this. I'm glad um, my wife is at home because she would really question <laughs> <laughs> the soundness of my judgment. Um, yeah. But yeah, let's go. Let's let's talk about it. Beautiful. Uh, well, get us started. Uh, why don't yeah. you give us sort of a, a brief history of the Mueller report? Yeah. How did it yeah. begin? So, we the 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 Justice Department, the FBI, I think, going back to the Obama administration, had some real concerns that the Russians were trying to mess with the 2016 election. And that the, there were some Trump-related officials that might be working potentially with them to, you know, sabotage our election. And that's really, really illegal in, in our country and treasonous kind of behavior if, in fact, that is true. And so the FBI was looking into it and then... You know, Trump is elected president of the United States, and and he at the time uh, appointed uh, Jeff Sessions, who is a senator from Alabama, uh, to be his attorney general. And uh, so, I think the the FBI, uh, you know, informed Sessions of you know we're looking into this stuff, and Sessions has to say, well, you know, I, I got to step out of this. Cause he was implicated. Because, yeah. Right? I'm, I, I, I'm kind of implicated or I'm a part of the process. I have a conflict of interest and which really the president was not very happy about that. He stepped away because he looks at the job a little bit differently uh, than uh, most folks who have stood in that office and understand the independence of the attorney general that you are not, the White House counsel, you are the chief enforcer of the law for the United States of America. Right. Yeah. Yeah. You're you're America's lawyer, not the president's lawyer. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, he appoints Ron Rodenstein, Ron Rodenstein, his assistant, uh, to kind of take over looking into this, and and they uh, appoint uh, a special counsel uh, 
under the law, which is a very different special counsel than the one that uh, that that went after Bill Clinton and, right. in the late 90s. And what I mean by that is, I mean, certainly they're different individuals, but more the law itself and the narrowness of what uh, th this special counsel uh, is allowed to do uh, as opposed to the kind of open-endedness that Ken Starr was really allowed to do in the last. And I think in many ways, the statute was narrowed in relation to what happened in mm -hmm. uh, 98, 99 in there. So uh, he appoints uh, Robert Mueller, who is the former, uh, I believe, uh, head of the FBI under uh, George W. Bush and a respected figure, uh, I think, uh, very much, if we want to, you know, use the colors, very much an orange, you know, uh, respect of the law, uh, respect of institutions, and uh, to dive into this and to and look. He himself was, was, was respected on both sides of the aisle, yeah? Absolutely, absolutely. I think you hear things from people like Lindsey Graham uh, from South Carolina, the senator, and, and Schumer from New York, uh, you know, folks had uh, had a lot of trust, I think, in his integrity, despite, you know, the president and I think his most vociferous supporters who, you know, kept claiming it was a witch hunt um, yeah. from the start. Yeah. Um, so he, he looks into a very narrow question of, it looks like Barr, in his language, when he's, when he's written these two letters to Congress, you know, he's talking about conspiracy. And we've been talking about con uh, collusion, and, and there's got to be a, 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 a relationship there. So he, you know, he, he looks into this issue. He, gosh, I mean, he, he interviews, you know, five, you know, there was like 40, 40 uh, FBI extra officials that were a part of this process. I mean, this was a very thorough investigation that lasted about two years of time. And... Uh, and, and really, you know, produced, I think, 37 indictments, uh, seven convictions. Uh, and so, uh, you know, they certainly did find some things <laughs> in, yeah. uh, out over this two-year period. Uh, and there's some, there's some grand jury hearings that are, that are still continuing right now. Yes, there are, there are other things that are going on, and we'll talk about that. But so, so... Uh, Mueller concludes his report, and he, he did it in absolute secrecy. Uh, again, you know, uh, just just did a thorough prosecutor's job. Yeah. And, um, and, and so I think in late March of this year, uh, Mueller submits his report to the attorney general. And that is really, the, that is what the statute said. He wasn't to submit it to Congress. Uh, he submits it to the attorney general for the attorney general to do with it as the attorney general sees fit. And, and so, and that attorney general is uh, William Barr, who uh, Jeff Sessions stepped down and Barr uh, stepped up uh, for the role. And he, uh, I believe, spent some time as attorney general under the late George H.W. Bush. So he had some experience and certainly has a philosophy uh, that uh, really 
follows executive power and yeah. executive privilege. And we can, you know, talk about that a bit. So mm -hmm. he gets the report. He it's, it's uh, apparently now we know it's well over 400 pages and he submits over the weekend after getting it on Friday, I think on Sunday, he uh, submitted a four page letter that he was called a summary at the time of the findings and has later been called something else. It's, uh, the, it's the summary that's not really a summary, right? It's the summary that's not really a summary, right? And, and, so and, he, and let's yeah. talk about what, what was actually in that summary. So, um, and, the, and the one piece I think that we, we uh, forgot to mention during sort of the history of the Mueller report was a lot of this started gaining traction and accelerating when James Comey was fired, right? Yes. I, I, I believe that's when that was sort of the, the, the straw that broke the camel's back in a sense and, and what actually got Mueller hired in the first place because Trump yes. comes onto national television and says, you know, I was thinking about Comey and I was thinking about this rusher thing and uh, he had to go. And yeah. to, to a lot of people, it was like, wow, did you just admit to obstruction of justice in a television right. interview? And is the, is the fact that you just admitted it out in the open, does that make it somehow more okay than if this was, you know, concealed somehow? But we'll, right. we'll, we'll get to all that. Um, so the bar right. report comes out and it basically summarizes this massive sprawling, we, we assume is a massive sprawling 400 page report into, you know, really kind of bite-sized sound bites. And we should mention that the bar report included only a few sort of sentence fragments of, of Mueller's own words. I think there was only maybe one complete sentence of Mueller's in that summary. So a lot of people are looking at that with a little bit of skepticism, just being like, okay, well, we can't really, we can't really apply a whole lot of certainty here until we actually see the full report itself. And then that gets complicated for a number of reasons that we'll also get into in a moment. But, yeah. but just to summarize, just to summarize the summary that turned out to not be a summary, <laughs> Barr says that Mueller came to three conclusions, or sort of three categories of conclusions. The first category was the question of did Russians meddle, tamper with the 2016 election? And apparently Mueller says, yes, we have incontrovert incontrovertible evidence that they did. So that in and of itself, to me, justifies the investigation. I mean, just sure. that one sort of data point justifies the entire two-year investigation. Mm -hmm. But then there's charge number two. So the, the second question was, okay, if there was Russian meddling in the election, did Trump or anyone on his team participate with, with a foreign power during that meddling? And according to Barr, Mueller says, no, we could not find evidence of that. Now, this is also something we're going to get into a moment because there's different levels of evidence. Yes. And what it very well could turn out to be is that Mueller could not find evidence beyond a reasonable doubt right. that there was conspiracy uh, yeah. against the United States of America. However, that doesn't mean that there's not all sorts of evidence that, you know, ranks differently on that, on that sort of hierarchy. Yeah, so, yeah. Maybe so I should, that, say again? Yeah, maybe I should just talk about the, the, that kind of hierarchy of... Um, well, let's get there, let's get there next. Let me, yeah. let me finish up with the third claim, and then, and then okay. I want you to do exactly that. I want you to, yeah. to sort of explain the burden of proof to us. So then the third uh, category was the question of obstruction. Did Donald Trump obstruct this investigation in any way? And apparently Mueller left this, he kind of punted. 
right? He sort of left this at, well, I've, here's some evidence on both sides and we're gonna leave it up to the AG to, to determine whether, you know, my sense is that Mueller knew that there was all these, these uh, procedures in place that says you can't indict a president and therefore it's not a legal question, it's a political question. And that's my sense of why he probably punted on, the, on this issue because there's not really a lot of legal recourse. You can't, apparently you can't indict a president. So, you know, my sense is Mueller was hoping that the report would get to Congress and then it's, it's basically, it's in their jurisdiction from that point right. on because then it's a matter of, you know, do you impeach or not to impeach? But before I get to that point, Barr comes out with basically two arguments in order to exonerate, quote unquote, Trump on this charge. He says, A, there can't be obstruction if there was no crime committed, which, okay, that's a little strange. A, we, just because, you know, OJ got off on all of his charges, that doesn't mean we think he was innocent, right? I mean, so, so clearly obstruction, it's not quite that cut and dry. And, and B, yes, you, ab I mean, ask Martha Stewart, you absolutely can be prosecuted for obstruction of just justice, even if the original crime, if there's no proof behind it. And then two, this really kind of fringe legal theory that, that Barr subscribes to, which is that presidents by their very nature cannot obstruct justice, which I think is, I'm not happy with either of those arguments. Um, you know, I think that there's, as I said, a pretty well-established precedent that yes, you can be charged on obstruction, uh, charged for obstruction, even if you didn't commit the original crime. Uh, and B, the idea that a president inherently cannot obstruct justice just basically makes him untouchable, right? It makes him above the law in all of these respects. And that's, I don't think, a place where a democracy like, like ours wants to go. So this, these are the conclusions that, that William Barr summarized for us which people then have been interpreting in all sorts of ways, right? To Trump supporters, this completely 100% exonerates the president 100%. And to liberals, it's like, well, no, we're seeing a cover-up in plain sight here. And my sense is the truth kind of has to, you know, probably fall somewhere in between those two extremes. And I think the only way we can actually get to that is if we have a better understanding of the burden of proof. Yeah. So here's where you come in to explain to us what is this hierarchy of evidence that's used in the court system in order to demonstrate or exonerate someone, uh, but, to, but to demonstrate guilt or, or to exonerate someone, yeah. Well, it's a great question. So, and there's so much to unpack here from what you just talked about. From, so let's just make sure uh, we make a note to talk about kind of bars interpretation of the executive uh, because it's 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 different and um, it's unique in some ways and then um, and then we're gonna you know talk about obstruction what that means and and uh, and then we'll we'll do right now what you just asked so with that um, Bob Mueller uh, he's a prosecutor, he's a prosecutor's prosecutor, and, and what we ultimately understand about prosecutors is that their job really isn't about conviction. Even though we spend and we watch all kinds of TV shows and all kinds of time and prosecutors run for office and talk about their conviction rates, their job is really about justice. And there's a Supreme Court case from the 30s where it outlines the role of a prosecutor is to ensure that justice happens. So um, 
a really good prosecutor isn't going to bring a case to trial unless they have proof beyond a reasonable doubt that a crime was committed. Proof beyond a reasonable doubt is the highest standard in the criminal justice system. It really means in some ways that you're, you know, you're over 90 percent, 90 per, over, over over that. And you, you really, really believe it. And that's, you know, at that point in time, that's when we take your liberty away. And sometimes we do that permanently. Uh, and and but that's the highest standard in the criminal justice system. And then there's, you know, there is no evidence or no scintilla of evidence, which means we just have no belief at all that something is wrong. Uh, and then, you know, the, the, the first standard where the police or the government can kind of intrude into your life is that when they have a reasonable suspicion. And so a reasonable suspicion is the standard when we pull you over for speeding. Uh, our reasonable suspicion is the standard if we see individuals casing a joint at one o'clock in the morning when nobody is around. Uh, we can stop you and we can ask questions until our concerns are allayed. Mm -hmm. And, and uh, if our concerns aren't allayed, then we can go further in the process. Uh, and then the next standard is, uh, is a, which we do for arrest, is probable cause. And so probable cause says that it is more probable than not that a crime was committed. And, and so uh, that's when we go ahead and arrest you, and then we go through the process to decide. But see, that's what's interesting is that the law enforcement officer's job is to, uh, as, you know, not arrest you unless you have prob probable cause. But the prosecutor's job to ensure justice is to see that if there is enough evidence to prove beyond a reasonable doubt. Mm. So when we look at what we know, which is very little um, from uh, Barr's uh, summaries, is that we know that uh, Mueller does not believe that there is proof beyond a reasonable doubt that there was uh, collusion or conspiracy between uh, Russia and uh, Trump uh, campaign or you know political folks connected with Trump. Uh, so we, we know that, but we don't really know a lot more than that. Mm. We don't really know what if if Mueller had reasonable suspicions, uh, if that 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 Mueller believes that he had probable cause. And I certainly don't think Mueller would write it that way, but I think uh, those that will read the 400 plus pages will be able to decipher just how much evidence was uncovered that would lead a, you know, in, in the law, we use the reasonable person standard to believe that a reasonable person would believe that, you know, these acts did happen. So um, it's, there's a lot to unpack from the report that we don't know about. Mm -hmm. And, and so then, you know, on that, that, that question of, 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 of obstruction, um, yeah, you know, it's, it's interesting. I was looking at some of the stuff when I was preparing for this talk, talk that one of the things that Mueller said that was quoted in uh, Barr's report, which is really, really interesting. He says, while this report does not conclude that the president committed a crime, it doesn't exonerate him either. Right. And that's pretty darn powerful. 
to say. And uh, so, you know, what, what led Mueller to believe what he wrote? And because, you know, Barr to write that in his summary, you know, uh, Mueller had to be very clear about that and shown a great deal of evidence to support on that issue of, of, of obstruction of justice. So, um, you know, I'm anxious to read that. The, the last letter that Barr wrote, I think, um, you know, I get, I, I understand from uh, a certain perspective that there are things that need to be redacted and that there are individuals that we want to protect uh, that could be sideline players that could be implicated in the process. And I think for right now, um, I want to trust the attorney general to, to, to do right in that I, I don't want to, you know, at least at this point, go in with, a, with skepticism that, you know, there's a conspiracy here, there's this huge cover up. You know, I, 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 I'll be the cynical asshole for you then. <laughs> Go ahead. I just, I read the second letter and I, I was like, okay, you know, um, let's, seems like mid-April. You gotta, you, there's a lot to work on. There's a lot to make sure we get right. Get it right. Get yeah. it into people's hands. And then if folks feel at that point that what we got it is something that, you know, really doesn't give us the full picture. And there really seems to be, you know, major pieces here that are missing. Well, then let's talk about it. I mean, yep. the fact the, the guy said that I'm going to take the president at his word and that, you know, he's not going to do the executive privilege of, of like going through it and fixing it up. And uh, and so, you know, my that gave me some level of encouragement, you know. Yeah, well, it, it was funny. Um, just add a drop of, of pessimism into your optimism here. I was, <laughs> I was, li I was listening to uh, Preet Bharara's podcast uh, earlier today, and they were talking about exactly that point, how, how Barr says he basically, you know, he says, I'm going to take Trump at his word, like you just said. I'm going to take him at his word that he's not going to exert executive privilege here, that Trump is trusting me, William Barr, to make these decisions for yeah. him. Now, what people are confused about is, again, just sort of the phrasing there. They're saying, okay, does this mean that there's going to be no consideration for executive privilege at all in these redactions, or are you, William Barr, responsible for deciding what is executive uh, privilege and what's yeah. not? In which case, that's a different conversation. At, at yeah. that case, Barr is acting as attorney for the president and, again, not for the United States. So, but at the same time, like you, I don't want to lapse into uh, sort of conspiratorial thinking, at least not until we have more evidence, because I think one of the big problems we have uh, culturally right now in the information age is this, this desire to jump into certainty. Right. And this this yeah. level of certainty is something that we see both on, you know, for example, Rachel Maddow. Right. She's got one type of certainty and another certainty that comes from Trump himself right down to his supporters. This completely 100 percent exonerates the president, sure. even though it says right there in black and white, this does not exonerate the president. Right. Um, you know, and again, my sense is the truth probably falls somewhere in the middle. But 
right now what I'm seeing sort of looking out is I'm seeing a lot of people on the right and even some on the left who have this sort of antipathy towards mainstream media, they're sort of going on this, you know, I'm thinking of people like, you know, Jimmy Dore and uh, Matt Taibbi and, you know, folks like that. They're taking this like gloating kind of victory lap to, you know, this I told you so tour um, and basically, you know, saying that the entire investigation was based on lies and manufactured by the media and the democratic deep state and they want vengeance on the Democrats for perpetuating these lies and all that. And my, here's, I mean, here's sort of my thing, is that we know, this is public record, we know that there was, just as a single data point, a highly publicized data chain, or email chain, between Don Jr. and a group of people from Russia, and that email included the line, this, maybe find it here, this is obviously very high level and sensitive information, but is part of Russia and its government's support for Mr. Trump. Don Jr. then responded by saying, if it's what you say, I love it, especially late in the yeah. summer. Very, very famous line right there. And then, as it turns out, there was a meeting in Trump Tower. Now, regardless, regardless of, of whether there were genuine transgressions of the law in that meeting. And I think, you know, there's, there's probably a decent case to be made on either side. Regardless, that to me, again, justifies the entire investigation. These things sure. happened. This, this was a fact. By Don Jr.'s own admission, even though the administration kind of came out with a series of lies, kind of yeah. distancing themselves from that story. But suddenly people are asking, why was the media manufacturing all these stories about Russian collusion? As if that email chain never existed. And it just blows me away because at least within the court of public opinion, that was reasonable suspicion. That seemed to fit the bar of like, no, there, there's, this is something that, that deserves and in fact demands a thorough investigation because if there was any collusion between, you know, our sitting president and a foreign, I mean, that's his worst case scenario as it gets. And if sure. there's even the most remote possibility that that happened, we need to know. Um, yeah. So I, I'm sort of, you know, I'm sort of blown away by a lot of, again, just the certainty that comes out of it. And this, you know, a lot of it, I think, seems to be coming from this desire to, you know, almost kind of be sort of above it all and to put the media in its place. But, you know, my sense is that when there's, you know, there was a lot of smoke in the air around this investigation. And when there's smoke in the air, it's the media's job to figure out where that smoke is coming from. And if yeah. there turns out to be no fire, well, okay, now it's the media's job to figure out where, where the fire actually was, what created all the smoke in the first place. Yeah. As far as I can tell, not that I don't have plenty of criticisms of the media, because God damn do I have so many criticisms of you know, our corporate controlled sort of uh, uh, you know, gatekeeping of information that we have in our culture. But this is a case where I'm just like, guys, don't throw the baby out with the bathwater here. The, the fourth estate was, was doing its job. Yeah. And they can't be held liable, e even if Trump is found innocent. Yeah, no, it's, it's, I mean, we, we have, I mean, there's a lot of, a lot of things that, that uh, along the lines of what you said that gave, I think, enough suspicion for them to conduct uh, an investigation. So you had, you know, I think during the campaign, Donald Trump, um, you know, asked the Russians to hack into Hillary's 
um, you know, email server and. But that was just a joke. You know, and, and, and they did it the next day, <laughs> you know? And so uh, I have a note here, Trump's associates had at least 102 contacts with Russians, uh, which many of them later lied about. And, yeah. you know, some of the lower level officials served some time um, for that. And yeah. you got the, the Jerry Kushner talk uh, comment, um, you know, it, it, um, it's just, there's, there is certainly enough there. Manafort's, uh, you know, all of his Russian contacts. They giving the GOP they, polling data to the, to the polling Ukraine. data, um, you know, to to buttress their efforts. Yep. Um, what about let's let's this is fun. Let's come up with a few more examples here because there's so again there there's so much legitimate smoke here. There was um, you remember when Trump did that really weird thing about uh, villainizing Montenegro? I don't think Trump ever heard of Montenegro, but right. suddenly he's like, you know, parroting this Russian propaganda who they were having this struggle with Montenegro, who was, who was coming into the NATO fold. And then there's the whole uh, uh, Russian in, invasion of Afghanistan and how that started, where he's parroting this, um, this, this Russian propaganda. propaganda. Yeah. There was a time he stood on the stage next to Putin and, and he was asked, you know, do, do you still not believe that? Uh, that Russia was hacking the elections and his response was, well, I don't see why they would. And then he comes home and he says, oh, I meant to say wouldn't. Right. And it's like these, these it's, it's such weak excuses, but what they really seem to be good at, assuming guilt here, um, which is my bias, I'll own it, but if there is guilt here, what, what they seem to be really, really good at is this sort of plausible deniability, packing every statement with just enough plausible deniability where you can say, I was just joking, I misspoke, I'm still learning shit as I go. I mean, there's, there's yeah. all these kind of fallbacks. Well, I mean, you know, another just kind of major piece is that Trump was doing business in Russia and, and was, you know, trying to build a tower in Moscow and, and kind of working with the Russian government at the same time. And and, you know, and, and Cohen lied about that uh, and admitted that he lied about that to Congress. And, and so, you know, it, it, there, I'm not sure if a crime was committed or not at, at all. I'm really not. I, I, I think there's a lot of quid pro quo kind mm -hmm. of stuff that I think a lot of this could kind of happen without uh, quite naturally that, you know, I have a vested interest of, 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 of wanting my building to be mm -hmm. where it is and to make all that money. And, and so, you know, it makes sense to me to reduce sanctions on Russia and, and Russia, you know, is, is no Hillary Clinton fan. And, uh, mm -hmm. and it makes sense to, to have, um, you know, Donald Trump who might be more favorable in terms of politics and reducing sanctions uh, in, in, in office. So, you know, I think it could be, you know, that's not very innocent, <laughs> you know, right. but it isn't necessarily illegal. Right. And, and so, um, you know, I, I want to, you know, profess the Socratic idea of, I don't know. And yeah. I guess I want to learn more and I want to trust that Bill Barr will, will give us more. You know, yeah. one of the things that I want to, 
bounce back to is, you know, we, we were talking about the issue of, you know, we can't indict a president. And, um, and really, you know, that was, that was a, a, a 1973 decision by the Justice Department during the Nixon uh, time that they felt that it was, it would be just too traumatic uh, on the country to, to actually, you know, do that. Mm -hmm. and, uh, and, and just injure institutions too much. And so um, we won't do that. Well, you know, the, the Clinton White House, um, you know, made a similar argument uh, in 98, 99, uh, and, and followed that memo uh, at that time, or the, the 73 memo that said that you can't do that. But it doesn't say, and I think what they, they also you know, made the argument that, you know, it's clear in the Constitution that, you know, you, you, um, you go through articles of impeachment, the process of impeachment to kind of uh, hold a president to account. And that's the only place that it talks about. But, you know, interestingly enough, it doesn't say in the Constitution that you can't indict a president. Mm. You know, it doesn't say that anywhere. Uh, it, and, you know, I get the, you know, the argument that says, well, you know, here's what you, how you can get a president out of office is through articles of impeachment. But it doesn't say that, you know, uh, a president can't be indicted. Uh, so, you know, I think we've, uh, those that really believe in executive privilege and, or, you know, the, you know, that really believe in Article 2 and, and the Constitution, the power of the executive, you know, have have made those arguments, but um, I'm just saying, I don't know if that's an absolute truth there. Right. And, right. and I think, I think others, uh, I'd be other constitutional scholars might have a really different take on it, but that's where we are right now. And you certainly have someone like William Barr, who is a strong advocate of executive privilege and, uh, you know, he comes from a period uh, uh, in the 1980s where uh, they were really feeling like the executive branch, like government was just growing out of control. And these were like the Reagan years. And they were like, and we've got to put a stop to that, you know, government out of control. And a way to do that is to harness the power of the executive. And so you started to develop this whole philosophy uh, about the power of the executive through organizations like the Federalist Society that is really an armchair for, you know, conservative philosophy. So, yeah. you know, we certainly know that Barr is going to fall down on that side. Uh, and, uh, you know, we're just going to have to see, you know, what the report has to say and if he really has taken this privilege to an extreme, uh, which isn't healthy, and then we got to pull back and make sure that there's a, a healthier balance. Right, right. No, well said. Which sort of brings us to uh, where we go from here, right? Yeah. So where we stand right now, so we're recording this on uh, Tuesday afternoon. It's, uh, I think the month is like April. Does that sound right? <laughs> well, I think yeah. It's starting to April, get warm here in New Hampshire. April 2nd. Yeah, exactly. April 2nd. We've got a lot of snow at my house. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's finally, it's finally warming up a little bit, slowly. 
Um, so where we currently stand is, so Barr last week let Congress know that uh, they should expect some version of the Mueller report in mid-April, which is a couple weeks away. Meanwhile, uh, the House put a deadline of tonight, actually. And what they're now saying is if they don't receive the full report tonight, uh, they're going to subpoena it. Right. And so this gets us, again, in, into sort of, you know, a, a little bit of complexity when we start talking about what are these redactions going to be? Who are these redactions for? Because, like, for example, I certainly don't think that the public should have a a full unredacted version of this. This is putting too many of our intelligence assets at risk and, you know, et cetera, et cetera. However, I do think the full unredacted report should go to a bipartisan congressional panel, the Gang of Eight, who have the security privileges that allows them to look at all these grand jury uh, investigations and all of that. Uh, and then there should be another version for the public, which is, you know, sort of skillfully redacted. Um, but there's, there needs to be some accountability to make sure that the redactions aren't being uh, enacted with too heavy of a hand uh, on the part of, of William Barr, which is why I want to see this, some version of this going to that bipartisan uh, panel in Congress. Does that, does that sound right to you? Yeah, it does. And, and I, I think, you know, the Mueller team, you know, they, they, they would sometimes, I think, strategically leak some things when they wanted to make sure the ship was still going straight. And, you know, I think they, the questions that they were asking Trump to answer that, you know, we got a hold of that. And so, you know, I, I, I think their team really wants to ensure, I mean, they, they gave so much of their time and, you know, and I, I think, you know, at the end of the day, we want to thank Bob Mueller. Uh, Absolutely. For, for for doing his job with such level of integrity under this pressure of folks on one side thinking that this is a witch hunt and and then on the other side you know folks you know praying that he's going to be the answer to end the presidency of Donald Trump yeah and, he's the magic bullet yeah and and he he just went about doing his job and and I think, you know, in many ways, as many times as the president threatened to shut it down, he didn't. And, and we, we, we got a report. It, and, and so, you know, as, as much as this president has, has kind of uh, taken on many of our institutions, uh, many of our great relationships uh, across the globe, uh, you know, I want to at least say, hey, thanks for not shutting this down. Mm -hmm. I'm really mm -hmm. glad that a stalwart prosecutor like Bob Mueller did not find proof beyond a reasonable doubt that you committed treason and acted totally in collusion with the Russians. You know, so there are some good things that, you know, and, and I may not be very happy with the overall presidency of Donald Trump. I think there's some some good things that have happened like criminal justice reform and taking on some of the things that are going on in, in China and things like that in terms of the, the trade and in our approach. So, mm -hmm. you know, but um, you know, I'm going to say kudos. Thank you for not shutting it down. 
we're, we're at a point that we're hopefully going to get to look at it. And, and I'm going to trust that Bob Mueller's team is going to make sure that what we all need to look at <laughs> is what we're all going to be able to see eventually over time. And, right. uh, and I think there are, you know, there's some savvy members of Congress that, you know, are having constitutional theorists working with them to ensure that they can exact the right kind of pressure uh, to make sure that Barr comes through. And, um, and like I said, I'm hopeful that uh, what he wrote will be what happens. But, uh, you know, it's not even when we get that and we get all that information, there's still uh, a lot for Trump's team to, uh, to be, you know, that have to reckon with, you know, we've got the Southern district of New York, uh, U S attorney's office who, uh, is, you know, is looking at, you know, campaign finance violations, uh, where, you know, the, the company that paid off, um, you know, the, the women that Trump, had illicit relationships with, uh, whether they, you know, they're mm -hmm. being paid by Trump and then paid that way and whether they were knowingly working together on that. And yep. Cohen has said, yeah, Trump knew all about it. And yeah, I'm pleading guilty. And so, you know, he showed us the receipts, showed the receipts, you know, he's looking into that. Um, they've subpoenaed the records of Trump's inaugural committee to determine whether you know, it's record $106.7 million in co contributors came from any foreigners or, you know, bought favors in return. Uh, the U.S. Attorney's Office in Washington, D.C. is going after Roger Stone, who predicted the dump of the WikiLeaks uh, information. And we know the Russians were working with WikiLeaks on that and uh, predicted exactly when that all was going to yeah. happen. Well, and that was, you know, just to bring us back, that was another thing about the actual phrasing in the first bar report was that he, you know, he explicitly says, you know, Mueller did not find that Trump, uh, you know, was, was, I'm paraphrasing here, was colluding with the Russian government. What it doesn't say is whether or not there was any evidence that there was sort of collusion by proxy, right, such as WikiLeaks and Roger Stone, who was not an official part of the Trump administration or the Trump staff, but you know, still weird things happen. Um, so again, we, we just sort of have to wait and see to see where the evidence actually falls and right. what, what Mueller was able to come up with. And I loved, I loved your call for, you know, sort of um, restraint and a little bit of calm and maybe even a little bit of reassurance because, you know, what a lot of us are seeing is that, you know, so many of our central institutions, I mean, the pillars of civilization upon which our, you know, entire society is resting upon, we're seeing these pillars sort of besieged in a lot of ways. They're, they're being undermined in a lot of ways, apparently, anyway. And I think that one of the most important stories of our time is that they're holding forth, that these, that these institutions are strong enough to weather the storm, to sustain all of this turbulence and all of this chaos and all of this, you know, what very well might turn out to be corruption. Um, and those pillars are, are holding strong. And that is, that is so, I don't know, I see that as just massively uplifting. Even yeah. while I think that so many of those pillars themselves need to be updated, transformed, 
brought into the 21st century. Um, and yet, you know, I, I'm not one to, I, I, I don't know, I, I don't have this sort of anarchist, <laughs> let the world burn and see what happens next kind. I, I'm too old for that shit. I'm, I'm, <laughs> I'm 42. I've got a kid in a mortgage. I don't, I don't want to see the world burn, you know? Um, so, you know, it's, it's, I think it's, 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 uh, it's, it's a really great call for us to just like, you know, exert a little bit of self-control. Don't jump to certainty. And as for myself, you know, I notice in myself these, these kind of competing narratives. You know, on the one hand, it's like I find Trump absolutely loathsome, right? Um, I think that there's all I, – I think he is most likely uh, corrupt as a $3 bill, and it's a matter of time before that catches up with him. Yeah. That said, I hope in my deepest hearts that he was not greedy enough, evil enough, and stupid enough to collude – with a nation like Russia. I hope that that did not happen because that would, again, that would be a worst case scenario for our nation as a whole that I think would take, I mean, I don't know how long it would take to sort of sort through the amount of cynicism. You know, democracy is, is like only as legitimate as the number of people who believe it, who believe in it. You know, it's kind of like Santa Claus. It's only as real as, as, as you're willing to believe. And the minute people start losing the sense of legitimacy, losing the sense that, you know, democracy is, is uh, the least worst <laughs> option for us in terms of how we self-organize, that, that's when chaos really starts to occur. And, and, I, and I apply this to the question of, of impeachment. You know, I, I am, generally speaking, I am not in favor of impeachment. I, th- I right. simply think that the, the amount of long-term damage that impeachment would do to our national fabric would outweigh the short-term damage that any single sitting president could inflict upon us. Right. That said, there's, cl- there's clearly exceptions. And the way I see, I personally see Donald Trump is that he likes to straddle that line as closely as he can. And uh, he, might, he might end up getting into trouble because of that, or he might just be, get away with whatever it is he's getting away with. Yeah. Assuming you. Well, you know, let's talk a little bit about impeachment. Um, it, it, uh, you know, it's, it's interesting because, you know, if we go back to original intent of the founding folks who wrote the Constitution, you know, here we are. We um, are rebelling against King George, and 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 really this whole idea of a you know an imperial power, a person in supreme commander, in absolute control of everything. And so you know we had a healthy skepticism of centralized government, and mm-hmm. and so right off the bat, um, they were pretty clear that we've got to have an ability to hold a president to account. And so, you know, they uh, wrote into the Constitution that the, in, in part one, that the um, part one of the Constitution deals with Congress and, and, and the whole, and the House and Senate. And so it says in there that the House has the ability to go ahead and impeach a president. And uh, the Senate, so they can go ahead and get a majority vote uh, 
to impeach. And then the Senate will try the president with having it over, um, overseen by the chief justice of the Supreme Court. And you're going to need, so, you know, it's kind of like the, 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 uh, the, the House indicts you in a way, and then the Senate tries you. And the Senate, you need to have two thirds to actually send somebody out of office. And, and so, and, and then in the, in part two of the constitution deals with the executive branch. And in there, it talks about, well, a president can be impeached or any, you know, uh, high civil official um, can be impeached from office for high crimes and misdemeanors. And it doesn't say anything beyond that. Right. It doesn't qualify it at all, does it? Doesn't, it doesn't qualify. So we've had two instances in our history where we have impeached a president, meaning the House voted and then they went to the Senate. And in both instances, they did not get the two thirds vote. And the first person was um, Andrew Johnson. And so he was the vice president in Lincoln's second term. And he was from Tennessee. And he was, you know, actually, he was one of the only folks from the South that supported the Union. But he was also, you know, had real Southern sympathies as well. And so, um, you know, the way they went about reparations, forgiving Southerners, all that, uh, you know, he was certainly far more sensitive to their side than I think many Northerners really appreciated and or liked. And so they, I think they wanted to, um, many of the more radical edges of, of, of the North wanted to keep a certain uh, Secretary of Defense or, you know, uh, Secretary of War in power that was pretty radical and on their side. And Johnson wanted to get rid of them. And so they uh, went ahead and like passed a law that said that, you know, people that are in office can't be thrown out of office, this, that. And Johnson just didn't follow <laughs> their rules and went ahead and tried to oust the guy. And then they tried him and, you know, and they impeached him. And then he uh, survived apparently by one vote. Oh, wow. Um, so... Oh. And then and then the other example I think most of our listeners would be quite familiar with is the Bill Clinton case. Yep. And, and that was, uh, you know, that had to do with uh, obstruction of justice and uh, lying to a grand jury. And, and so, um, and, and he was, uh, you know, involving his uh, affair, illicit affair with Monica Lewinsky uh, and that all came from a, you know, a Paula Jones, uh, mm -hmm. who was a woman who sued him for, you know, sexual harassment or, or, you know, uh, you know, inappropriate, uh, touching and things like that. And, and, uh, and he, when he was being questioned, they actually set it up. They knew the real answers and they asked him and, and, and he wasn't honest in the process. And so the, uh, Republican-led uh, House uh, voted to impeach him, and it went to the Senate, overseen by then Chief Justice Rehnquist, who's passed away, and uh, they didn't have two-thirds right. uh, of the senators 
to support him uh, getting impeached. And so uh, Clinton wasn't impeached. And so, you know, and his popularity I, I, went up after that. That's, that's an important part of the story. It's true. And, and, you know, and it's, it's really an interesting moment now in our history with the Me Too movement and, uh, and it's, you know, sudden sensitivity to Monica Lewinsky's plight at that, uh, at, at now at this point in history, mm -hmm. as opposed to at that point in history when she was painted in many circles in a really dark light. So there's, you know, there's a lot of different pieces of that. But, you know, even all of what I just said gives you, Ken Starr had a really, really more wide expansive get to look at Bill Clinton and yeah. all of his affairs as opposed to Robert Mueller. And the only issue was this collusion or conspiracy with Russia. You know, Ken, Ken Starr's investigation actually began uh, on Whitewater. Right. It was a real estate scandal, right? Real estate scandal that they were never able to prove. Um, yeah. Interesting. Now, to be fair, our conservative friends are going to are going to hear what you just said, and they're going to say, "Well, wait a minute! All of those indictments that came out of Mueller's office, none of those had to do with Russian collusion, mm -hmm. right? It was tax evasion. It was it was hacking elections. It was you know it was it was any number of things. What it wasn't was an indictment of Don Jr. Yeah. Uh, you know, for colluding with Russians, which again, isn't actually a crime, but conspiracy is. Um, so that, that's what they're going to say about this is that, th well, wait a minute, guys, this was just as much of a fishing expedition as the Ken Starr report was. And I don't get the sense of that true. I agree with you that it was much more narrow than that, but it was expanded at least as much to be able to include uh, the Russian hacking of our election. And by hacking, I mean, you know, information. Yeah. I, you know, I mean, the thing is, is that if, if a prosecutor, um, you know, has something crossed their desk that, um, that totally indicates that there is crimes that have been committed, <coughs> you can't ignore it. Right. You, know, you, can't, you can't ignore it. And so I don't think <coughs> Bob Mueller was looking for anything other than what he was looking for, but things came across his desk and mm -hmm. that, you know, and Roger Stone's stuff is an example. Yep. Well, and of course, one of the, one of the pieces that we're waiting to see is which investigations ended up getting, you know, farmed out <laughs> uh, to the SDNY. In other words, there's, there's a lot of the way the story's being told anyway, is that Mueller was able to uncover a number of sort of evidence trails that fell outside of the purview of his investigation. So he handed those down to places like right. SDNY and, you know, and so forth. <clears throat> that's and exactly it. That's and exactly. we're waiting to see what those consist of. Yeah, and so that's why you've got the New York U.S. Attorney's Office, you've got D.C. U.S. Attorney's Office, uh, and, and also at the same time, uh, the New York State Attorney General's Office is looking into mm -hmm. Uh, behaviors and and you know in addition to that Congress is looking in so you know I guess the the long-winded answer to your question is there's a lot still that's still in play uh, and and uh, that you know we're it still needs to be answered along with understanding what is inside the Mueller report so I'm you know 
I'm anxious to see all of that kind of play out and, and hopefully get some of these things behind us so that we can, you know, talk about some of the, you know, serious issues that our country is facing that I know, you know, some things that you and I will talk about in future conversations like totally. speech and criminal justice reform and, and, uh, and all, you know, any, any way that we can relate to the law yeah. and even things like the climate and the earth and how we relate to that as you there, talk there, to there, There's so much. Right. Yeah. Right. There's so much I'm looking forward to talking to you about on the show. Um, as you've mentioned, free speech, I want us to talk about the electoral college and to make a yeah. case on either side of the electoral college. I mean, there's, We've got a lot of ground to cover, brother, and I'm excited. Yes. I'm excited to, to, you know, be a part of the show with you. And I'm let me honored. just ask you a final question before we, yeah. you know, I want your personal, completely biased, <laughs> unprofessional opinion. Let's say the Mueller report comes out, and although he could not find evidence beyond a reasonable doubt <coughs> to implicate Trump colluding with Russia, Let's say the report comes out and there's plenty of so a shotgun of evidence that fulfill these other categories, right? If that's true, should the Democrats impeach? Um, I think impeachment ultimately is a political question and you kind of set the bar to wherever you kind of want to set it. I think Gerald Ford at one point said, uh, you know, said that when he was um, in Congress. I'm gonna, I don't want to act like I'm punting, but I don't know. I don't freaking know. I'm just not question. sure. I, you know, I, a part of me says, you know, shit, you, you, you did the stuff. It's pretty clear. You got to be held accountable. And that, you know, that, that as a society, we don't want people getting away with stuff um, that, is seemingly illegal and you know and, and much less the president of the united states you know on the other hand i see the you know the the constant kind of uh investigation this kind of culture that we're just gonna now we're gonna look into everything from your past donald yeah. trump yeah and, we're, we're assuming guilt at this point you know and everything that you've ever done in your life and we're kind of moving that way as a culture that we're going to drum up things from your past on folks. And, you know, that leaves me uncomfortable. And, and so, you know, I, you know, I, so I, I, I kind of hope that the, the, the folks in power that are investigating all of this limit the scope of their investigation to things that have uh, of current interest and, and uh, to our society at this point. And, leave the other stuff for a different day. Otherwise, I just think that we're just setting this, this culture where whoever becomes the next president, they're just going to be under constant investigation if they're not in the party of power at that okay. point. Then, and and um, this isn't good for our democracy. In fact, you know, that's, you know, one of the things I hope that uh, we can go from here is to talk about ways of, strengthening our democracy, ways to ensure that more, more people actively, collectively participate in uh, the democratic process and in, in democratic institutions. We've got a lot of work to do that way. And, 
And when we're in the constant mode of accusation and investigation, we aren't working together across aisles to, to solve things that we really need to solve. And, uh, and, and I can't wait for our next 10 shows to talk about and, and break down all those different things, brother. Totally, man. Oh, that was, that was beautiful. Thank you. Thank you for offering your own sort of opinion here. I, I'm actually really aligned with yours. I think that I personally think that even if the Mueller report came out and the evidence was beyond uh, the highest possible standard, um, I still think this is best resolved at the polls. In yeah. other words, especially in today's climate of sort of media uh, fragmentation and balkanization, um, an impeachment is only going to lead to a deepening and a re-entrenchment of all these conspiracy theories, all this deep state stuff. Yeah. And I think the only way to get this out of our system, to flush this sort of uh, conservative regression that we're seeing, is to stomp it out at the polls on election day in yeah. 2020. I think that's, that's the only way, to, that, that is literally the only way to send a clear signal that we collectively, culturally, morally have moved beyond this and we're ready yeah. for the next conversation which i've been calling after the wrecking ball which is yeah. i think a, a fun conversation to have yeah yeah i can't wait yeah man well mark this has been awesome our first show what do you think yeah. did we do good <laughs> i loved it i think we did I loved awesome. It. i love riffing with you yeah this was a lot of fun and uh just to let everyone know we're going to be doing this once a month yeah. Uh, we'll be letting people know when I think we're looking at like the third Sunday of the month, but we'll get, we'll get that into, uh, etched in the stone. And, uh, our next episode, we're going to be talking about, uh, something that'll probably make our conservative friends happy. We're going to be talking about the erosion of free speech on mm -hmm. college campuses, which is a really, really big problem guys. And I hope you guys all tune in next month, uh, for this conversation. We'll make it a Q and a. So you guys can actually join us live and ask questions and have some real time back and forth. Uh, and in the meantime, Mark, thank you so much, man. This has been awesome. You're awesome. Uh, you. And you, we'll, I'll talk to you soon, brother. All right. Many blessings to everybody. Take care. All right. Bye now. Bye.